which is the Dean of April, and we are taking a look at this portion of, of the, the narrative where Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and is on his way to the cross. Uh, typically, we call that the Passion, uh, Jesus' Passion. And so we have been looking for a number of weeks at the Passion narrative, and we'll continue to do so uh, at the beginning, uh, you know, even this morning in Matthew 22 and 23. Forgive us for having a few te technical difficulties. And so I don't know if you can, if I'm coming through the system, if I'm not, I'm going to talk really loud. Which stinks for me because I have a very sore throat this morning. <clears throat> but we will do the best we can. Uh, if you want to follow along, we're going to be reading from Matthew 22 and Matthew 23. Uh, it is printed for you in your worship folder. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible, you can. You'll see the verses there in the insert in your worship folder. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Matthew 23, 1 through 12. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. <coughs> then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor, feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Terry, do I need to change microphones? Does that mean yes? You may grab this one over here. Or I can just grab yours, can I? Forgive all the craziness. I hate these things that don't matter. All right, now we've got it. Praise God. Pray for me. I'm without my wife for five days and the first, for the first time in 13 years of marriage and 10 years of parenting. And uh, she left. She left feeling very ill, and but the worst part, in my opinion, probably not in hers, but in mine, is that she left us beginning to be very ill. Uh, and so it's going to be a fun week, and I'm going to try my best. I have a little water bottle here because I've really got a sore throat this morning. Uh, Jesus, Jesus' coming into Jerusalem has brought on a great deal of conflict. Uh, really, it's brought on the conflict that has been brewing for three years under the, the surface of his ministry. The Pharisees, at this point, have launched their full-scale frontal attack that will eventually lead to his crucifixion. Uh, what I love about Jesus and what you see here in this passage is that Jesus refuses to go down without a fight. He has some things to say to them as well. And for that, uh, we come to this passage in Matthew 23. For us, as we think about what it means for us to think through the words that Jesus gives us here and to apply them to our lives, we need to say it like this at the beginning of our time together, that there is something about being religious, and I'm going to define that word, but there's something about being religious that can be dangerous, 
where it makes you self-assured and arrogant and condescending towards others. What we learn in Jesus's, let's say mild, no, it's not mild, in Jesus's strong words to the Pharisees and the religious leaders here in Matthew chapter 23, is that it is possible to be so concerned with being good or being right. It's possible to be so concerned with following the rules or having good theology that you forget the greater goal, love. And this passage is a corrective, back towards the goal of love. Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees is just that. It's that they don't love well. They are very religious. They're, they're committed. They follow the rules. <clears throat> they have right beliefs about God. They're good, moral people. But they don't love well. They're arrogant. They're full of self-concern. They're impatient and rude and condescending. They're inhospitable and unkind in their relationships with people. And so this critique, you know, this critique that Jesus has is interesting. This critique is most often the critique that is leveled against the church when the wider culture calls us. And you notice this in the, in the, the media and, and all over the place when we're called hypocrites. This is typically what they mean, that we have this show of religion, that we show up on Sundays and we vote the way we're supposed to vote and we do all the right things and we claim to be really good people, but we just don't love well. And for the most part, I want to say, we are guilty as charged. So what we want to see this morning is that an experience of grace, on the other hand, as it's contrasted with a commitment to be religious, an experience of grace, of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming home to your heart, that one of the consequences of that is it's going to make you a good lover of people, of God and people. And you see that here. And so three things I want us to, to focus in on this morning as we get ready to come to the, the table this morning, okay? Three things. The command and the priority to love. Secondly, <clears throat> Jesus' critique of the Pharisees' failure to love. And then thirdly, where does the power to love come from? So just those three things, the command or the priority to love, the failure to love on the part of the Pharisees, and then the power to love. And those are our three points that we need to work through this morning. Just beginning with this, uh, the command or the priority to love. Uh, I was thinking this week, I remember in the fifth grade, Mrs. Lawn's class at Garden Grove Elementary School, I got an S, which stands for satisfactory, instead of a G, which stands for good on my conduct portion of my report card for talking too much in class and not paying attention. I was terrified. It's funny, because I remember this. I was sure that my parents were going to beat me when I got home. It was, after all, the first time in my whole life that I did not have all G's. And I know that's a silly example, but it's the first memory I have of the real emotional weight of failure. <clears throat> and, and the point is this, is that every failing grade is given against a certain standard. The standard and the expectation in fifth grade is, is that when the teacher is talking, the students are listening. They're not talking to one another. They're paying attention to what's going on to, with the teacher because if they talk when she's talking, there is no learning. And if you're a teacher, you know this. And so it's a good rule. It's a good expectation. Every failing grade is given against a standard. And the standard upon which the failing grade Jesus gives these men in this passage is just this. The standard and the design is love. For all of their commitment, all of their energy towards obedience, they've failed to love. And so look there, when the lawyer comes to Jesus to ask him for the summary 
of the law, Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say obey God with all of your heart and soul and mind. He doesn't say submit to God with all of your heart and soul and mind. He doesn't say follow God with all of your heart and soul and mind. What does he say? He says love God with all of your heart and soul and mind. Now the word love is a word that means to appreciate or to delight in something because of you have a high regard for that thing. That's what the word means. So to love God means to highly regard him, to see him as supremely valuable, to experience great affection in him, to cherish him and delight in him above all things. And in the same way, to love your neighbor then means that you highly regard your neighbor, you delight in them, you value them above yourself, you consider their needs as being more important than your own needs. And this is what Jesus means. I want to say it this way this morning because this is going to kind of be the the thing that we come back to. When you love somebody, you disappear. You become less important. You are no longer at the center. The other person is. What they want, what they need becomes more important than what you want and what you need. And Jesus says that's what the law is all about. That's the goal and the intent of all of the, you read all through the Old Testament of all of the commands and the precepts and the laws that God gave to his people Israel, that was the goal, that they would become a people who learned what it meant to love. That was the big deal. The Greek here, when they ask for the great commandment, is mega. That's the mega command. That's the command beyond, you know, the command behind all the other commands. The law is here to teach us and to help us to love. It's the blueprint, blueprint for love. Now, Jesus says in these verses... He says two things. He says that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and love our neighbor as ourselves. So Jesus says we are to love God. And let's go through this for just a minute. With all of our heart, Jesus says. And for the ancients, the heart was more than just the, the organ that pumped blood through the rest of the body. It was the seed of the thought life and the emotions. The heart, if you read the Bible, the heart speaks, the heart thinks, the heart feels, the heart does all of these things. And so when Jesus says, love God with all of your heart. He's saying, love him with the core of your life. Love him from the very center. You know, love him, in, let, let everything in your life, every word and every thought, every deed, every course of action, every decision-making process, everything in your life be motivated and come out of love for God. He means to have affections for him, to feel and to experience the spiritual reality of delight and joy in God, to have tasted and seen, you know, tasted his goodness. Not hypothetically, but experientially to have the, the spiritual reality of the beauty and the, the majesty and the power of God come into your life, to love him with your heart. But he says also to love him with all of our soul, that we are to love God with all of our soul. And that Greek word there is the Greek word psyche. It means life force. It, it is the thing that energizes your life that your life should be energized in love for God. What defines your very personhood, Jesus says, should be your love for God. In Greek mythology, Psyche was the wife of Eros, the god of love, and she was um, hated by Aphrodite because of her beauty and the fact that there were men who preferred her even above the goddess Aphrodite. Psychology, in the same way, same root word, is the study of our desires and our wants, you know, that motivate our behavior. And so Jesus is saying, love God with all of your desire, with all of the inner parts of your life, and even with your mind. In other words, love him with every part of you, with your whole being. That's the first 
and the greatest commandment. And then the second, he says, if you look there, is like it. That means it's the same. You can't have one without the other. They're of equal importance. You can't claim to love God and not love others. So the second one is like it, and that is that we are to love our neighbors. If you truly love God, in other words, then you will become a person who is loving towards your neighbors. Specifically, we're commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. Do you see that? And what Jesus is revealing to us to be true about that in that verse is that if you look close enough into the inner parts of your life, you will find that at the center of your life is self-love, that what is really driving you and everything you do is self-concern, that you are at the center of your life. And what the Bible wants to teach us is, is that this is the essence of sin, this self-centeredness, this, the, way, you know, the way we love ourselves, the, how full of self-concern we are. And John Piper, who's a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and a kind of a, a really great theologian and writer, he has a great statement in one of his books. And he says, the root of our sinfulness, now hear this, the root of our sinfulness is the desire for our own happiness apart from God and apart from the happiness of others in God. All sin, he says, comes from a desire to be happy, cut off from the glory of God and cut off from the good of others. So sin is, I'm going to be happy. I don't care what God thinks, and I don't care what it does to you. My goal is me, to, to, to find fulfillment and happiness for myself, despite what that might mean for you. But what Jesus points us to here is something radically different than this. He says to love our neighbors as ourselves, and that must mean then, and Piper goes on to say, in fact, in the same little article in the, in the book that I was reading, he says that we must make the measure of our self-seeking the measure of our self-giving. In other words, if you look close enough in your life, you will see that the majority, the overwhelming majority of your energy and your creativity and your time and your resources go into making sure your heart has everything at once, that your desires and your needs and your wants are fulfilled. But what John Piper and what Jesus, and when those two agree, you ought to really pay attention, by the way. Just throw that out there. What Jesus is saying is that to love our neighbor as ourself means that we begin to make the measure of our self-seeking the measure of our self-giving. So Piper goes on to say, seek for your neighbor then the same things you seek for yourself. But listen to this. He says, seek them in the same way, with the same zeal and energy and creativity and perseverance. Make your pursuit of the happiness of others. Measure your pursuit of the happiness of others by your pursuit of your own happiness. Let me translate that for you. What Jesus is saying is that to be really begin to love your neighbor as yourself, you have to replace the self-love and the self-concern at the center of your life with love and concern for others. You have to disappear. Your desires and needs and goals must become secondary to the desires and wants and needs of others. And so that's what we're being called to here. That's the, that, is, that is the command and the priority to love. Now immediately, if you, are, if you know your heart at all, if you're wise to the, to the reality of the human heart, uh, one little bit, you immediately see the problem. That what Jesus says is going to have to be true of people who love God and love their neighbors as their self is that there must be less concern replaced by more concern for others. Big problem. Because how in the world do you become a person who is free, who is whole, and who is energized to really love? Well, here's what I think this passage helps us with. Becoming religious isn't the answer. 
Becoming religious can't do that. And here's what I mean. Saying, I've got the solution. I've not been trying hard enough. I'm going to try harder. That won't do it. And here's how I know it won't do it. Just in this reality, how many of your New Year's resolutions are already failed projects? <laughs> Anybody? I had this experience. This is really humbling. We, we met a couple weeks ago to kind of at the beginning of the year, and so Jonathan and some of the guys were meeting with, you know, what's my turn? Well, what are we, what are we working on this, this year? Well, I, I really need to lose some weight, and I really want to do a better job of praying with my wife and with my kids, and I'd really, and I got, two or th- I got three or four things down the list, and Jonathan kind of, um, those were the things you told us to pray for last year. It's like, oh, man. I made a lot of progress in 2010, Right? I mean, in other words, putting your will to the project of seeing the things that need to happen in your life become reality won't do it. And the Pharisees here in this passage were very religious, but they failed to love because religion can't make you a loving person. There's no power in religion to change you. Religion doesn't deal with the interior motivational dynamics of the heart. It can't root out the selfishness that's there and the self-centeredness that's natural to the heart. In fact, and this is the point I want to make to you this morning, is that if anything, it increases. It increases. It makes us more self-centered. It increases the self-concern. Excuse me. Self-concern in our hearts, and thus destroys our capacity to love. And this is what we see in Jesus' critique of these men. Uh, And two things. Jesus shows them and us how they have failed to love and what they do, and then secondly, in why they do it. And so these are the two places, two ways that they've really failed. Jesus is showing us how they fail to love and what they do and in why they do it. And let's take those one at a time as we just work through these verses together. Now, first in what they do, if you turn to Matthew 23, verse 4, the first thing Jesus says about them there is that they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. And let me try to explain this. Jesus says in verse 2 that they sit in Moses' seat, and that reference there is that that they have been given a place of authority as teachers of the law over the people of God. But what Jesus says uh, happened was as though it was their job to teach people to obey the law and to love God and to love their neighbor, they began to unnecessarily burden people with regulations and rules that just if you've ever been like on a packing trip where you've had to take, you know, horses or mules or something and load all of your supplies and throw them on the back of those animals and you know because they're it's too heavy for you to carry up the mountain that's what they were doing they were tying heavy burdens upon people and laying them on their shoulders until they just could barely even stand up underneath the weight now here's what i mean they would do this is what they would do they would take a law Okay? This is what the Pharisees would do. They would take a law, pick anyone, thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not covet. And what they would do is they would develop, and this was a good thing, they would develop strategies for obeying the law. But then what they did is they would take those strategies and they would demand that their strategies, which were strategies, be adopted by everyone else as if they were law. So they would take a law, develop strategies, and then take that strategy and require everyone else to accepted as law. Now, when Jesus says they tied up heavy burdens, he means they required a greater obedience than even the law required. But even more than that, he means that they were trying to lord over the consciences of other people. They tried to bind the consciences of people uh, with, uh, to adopt their opinions about how things should be done. Now, let me give you an example of how they weighed people down. And this, you're going to laugh at this, but this is, this is meant to be funny, but not so. So take the rule in scripture, wives, submit to your husbands. That's a good one, right? Men, amen. 
well, anyway. So some well-meaning lady, this was a number of years ago, some well-meaning lady writes a book about wives submitting to your husbands. And so she says, well, if you really want to obey God and love your husband well, well, this is what this means you must do. You need to have the house cleaned up and dinner hot on the table for him when he gets home. Make sure you have your makeup on and your hair combed and, you know, you're dressed nicely so that when you greet him at the door with a kiss, he's just very glad to be home because, after all, that's what a Proverbs 31 woman would do. Nobody's laughing. That's supposed to be funny, <laughs> right? And, that, and that, that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but it's out there. That's out there. I mean, you're scoffing, but that's there. It, it, you know, so this is what we do. It could be anything like, okay, take the rule. Jesus tells us to be salt and light in the world, and this is something that we're wrestling through in our home right now. So if we're called to be salt and light, then what we've got to do is we've got to take the command to be salt and light, and then we develop strategies, all kinds of strategies that we employ to try to be salt and light. So we, th- we think through a strategy. Do my kids play sports? Do they not play sports? You know, am I going to school? How am I going to school in public school, private school, homeschool? You know, where am I going to live? Is it okay to live in a gated community? Do I need to be downtown among, you know, the poor people in the city? All these strategies, but if we're not careful, what we can do is we can take a strategy and we can turn a strategy into a law and try to bind the consciences of other people with it and lord over them. Be careful. Because that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were making demands of people unnecessarily, weighing people down under heavy burdens. They were putting themselves in the place of God and other people's lives. Now let me apply this for just a second and say, you were designed to be weighty in the lives of your neighbor. Whether you realize it or not, you have the power to tie up heavy burdens on people. At the same time, you're not the Lord of your neighbor's conscience. That's what Jesus is teaching in these verses. Jesus goes on to say, call no man your father on earth. You see that there? It's Jesus' way of saying, don't let the opinions of others rule over your conscience. Don't Don't give the voice of a person such weight in your life. That's not healthy. Don't let what they think be the most important thing. It's not what God thinks is the most important thing. What God says should be the weightiest thing in your life. And then he says to those who are in authority, to me, to the, if, if you're a parent or a boss or a pastor like me, he says in verses 10, 8 through 10, You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Don't be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. And that word instructor is the word that means master. He's saying don't let people give you the place of master in their life. That's not good for your heart. That's not good for their heart. And I may be the pastor of this church, but I'm not your master. Thank Jesus. I heard that here, here from somebody. You know, I'm not the master. Jesus is. It's my job to get you to him. It's my job to get you to listen to his words, not to my words. And that goes for parent. I mean, you know, to, to, I mean, you know, you, you got to figure out the authority thing. I realize, with especially with small children. But I'm not your rabbi; I'm your brother. Jesus says we're brothers and sisters. In other words, we're all on the same level, just trying to figure this stuff out together. And so, this is what they were doing: they were tying up heavy burdens and laying them on people unnecessarily. Now, the second thing Jesus reveals is why they were doing this, or what they were after in all of the doing that they were doing. And in verse 5, he says that they were doing their deeds to be seen by others. So at the heart, 
These men were motivated by the attention and the approval of others. They loved to be seen. They loved for other people to look at them. They dressed up, Jesus says, to draw attention to themselves. They were hungry for places of honor. They longed for recognition. They loved titles. They loved, they loved to sign their name on documents and then include all the letters at the end to prove their significance. Their dress, their actions, their entire lives were calculated to draw attention to themselves. So Jesus is exposing the inner motivations of their hearts. Not only did they fail to love in what they were doing, but also in why and their motivations. They were full. You see, these men were full of self-concern and conceit. They were on a desperate search for significance. They needed the approval of the crowds to fill the inner emptiness in their lives. It was all about them, even their good works, Jesus says. And even in those things, they, were doing, they weren't doing them with a genuine desire to help others. It was just a way to build a spiritual resume and get noticed. It was all about them. And this is why I say that religion can't make you a person that loves. It will take, what it does is religion, this religious construct that so many are still in, it takes the selfishness that is natural to the human heart and it magnifies it. And here's what I mean. At the heart, what the Bible teaches is that we're insecure. We're empty of glory. There's, a, there's an approval vacuum at the center of, li- of our lives because because of our sin, we've lost communion with God and the voice that is meant to tell us who we are and to give us a sense of meaning and identity and purpose is now silent. And so we live with this inner emptiness, this inner approval vacuum, this insecurity that we go throughout our whole life with. And this explains why the Pharisees are doing what they're doing. They're tying up heavy loads and putting them on people. Why do we do that? I mean, why do we take strategies and turn them into rules and enforce them on other people? Why do we do that? Because we need to fit, we're trying to fill up the inner emptiness and to prove that our way is right. And why do we need so badly to do that? Because we're still, at the heart, we're still trying to earn a righteousness of our own. We're still trying to prove ourselves We're still trying to strive for a record of righteousness that is our own doing, and that's what religion is. Religion is the belief that you can follow the rules, and through that obedience, you merit the approval and love of God and others, that you try really hard, you know, to be good so that God will like you and give you a good life, and so that other people will look at you and admire you and say, man, man, he's he's great. But here's the problem. This whole system of works righteousness doesn't deal with the pride and the insecurity in here, it only magnifies it. It, in, it increases our self-concern. It makes, it makes you more focused on yourself because it increases the sense of insecurity because at the end of the day, you can never know if you've done enough. You see, if you believe that your standing with God is based upon your performance, then when you have a good day, you'll be proud of your performance, and when you have a bad day, you'll be in despair over your performance. But whether you're euphoric or in despair, guess who you're thinking about? You. It's all about you. (laughs) Your emotional reality is tied to how well or how poorly you've performed. That's where it goes, and that's what religion does. It makes you more self-aware, more self-concerned. It makes you more driven to prove your superiority over others so that you're more likely to be critical of people who don't measure up to your standards, more exacting in your obedience, more demanding of your spouse and your kids and your friends. And what's driving you in all of that is an attempt to gain a righteousness of your own that you can boast about. And so where that is at the center of your life, where that in the, in the midst of the religious construct is at the center of your life, 
it will be impossible for you to love because what is love? Love is the absence of self-concern. Love means you disappear. Love means you become less important. Love is making a big deal out of somebody else. And as long as you're still operating in a works righteousness system, you'll never be able to do that. You won't be able to be invisible. You'll still have a need to be seen. Emotionally, you won't be able to make a big deal out of other people. You'll need other people to be making a big deal out of you. Even doing good works, those good works will just be a matter of, you know, you're doing them for the attaboy you get at the end. There's only one way to live a life of love towards God and others. And that is to know that you're loved apart from anything you've done and to earn anything you've done to earn that love or disqualify yourself from it. In other words, you have to believe the truth of the gospel, you, that you have the love and approval of God because of Jesus' record of righteousness and not your own that jesus lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you should have died he stood in our place in his death he stood in our place in his life and if we come to him in faith then the promise of the gospel is that no matter what our record of sin or selfishness might be we are credited with the righteousness of jesus christ but the truth is we're all dressing up to get approval aren't we we went to a meeting this week, I'm going to tell them myself, just as we come to a close, uh, of church planters and pastors in our denomination who have gathered together, bonded together, because we want to plant a lot of churches in the state of Florida. And so there were 37 churches at this meeting, represented all the way from Jacksonville down to Sarasota and below. And, uh, and we're going to give a lot of money to church planting and pool our resources and get a lot of work done in church planting. And I quickly began, became aware of, of the 37 churches that were there, there was only one mission church uh, that was that was present. And that was us. In other words, we're not particularized. We're new, and it, I, you know, it really kind of fed my ego to think, man, we're only two years old, and we're in the room with all these other guys, you know. And so, by the end of the day, I realized on the drive home that about three or four times during the meeting, I had worked into the conversation. You know, we're the only mission church here. <laughs> you know, isn't that cool? Can you believe that? I mean, we're only two years old, and we're a. Well, what was I doing? I'm dressing up. I'm trying to dress myself up to gain the admiration and approval of those men to distinguish myself, to say, look at me. Haven't we done well? I mean, can you, Matt, can you believe what we've got done? Aren't we great? <laughs> and we're all doing that. And what concerns me is, is that what the scripture teaches, and even what we saw when these girls were up here on the stage a few minutes ago, is that in reality, at the end of the day, the only way to really get God's approval is to be stripped of all of our pretensions and to stand naked before him and be clothed only in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's why the line of the hymn is so powerful. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. I'm naked. I have nothing. I'm completely helpless. I have no claim on God's love, there's nothing in me that could motivate him to be merciful or compassionate towards me. I deserve only his wrath and condemnation, and yet he looks upon me with eternal love and brings me into his family and calls me his child. I mean, how is that possible? I mean, how, how in the world could that be? And you see it here in verse 11. There's only one way it's possible, and that is that the greatest among us indeed has become a servant. Jesus offers it as a command there, but it's also a reality that Jesus is our creator and Lord, and yet he is bent so low as to wash the feet of his ungrateful disciples that the exalted one was humbled 
Why would he do that? And the answer the Bible gives is so that he could exalt us, so that he could lift us up. And so the truth of the gospel, what we're learning is that it can come into your life and it can begin to exalt you. The gospel can affirm you. It can begin to fill up the emptiness inside of you. If we are righteous before God because of Jesus' record and not our own record, then that secures us in a way that no system of works righteousness can And the more secure you are, the more you can come to boast in him, the more exalted, the more, in other words, the more the gospel lifts you up out of your fear and insecurity, then you can really begin to humble yourself. And when the love of God for you in Christ really begins to come home to your heart and you know that it's real, then you can really begin to love. You don't have to think about yourself. You can really begin to think about others. Or the more you apprehend that God sees you and he knows you, and he loves you and approves of you, then you really, can dis- you really can disappear. You can become less important. You can begin to serve because it doesn't have to be about you. He sees you. You don't need anybody else to see you. You can disappear. You can begin to serve. And that's what it means to love. You see, you see what? You see, religion, religion can't do that. The gospel has to come home to your heart and begin to work. So that's why I'm thankful we're coming to this table this morning. So would you pray with me as we prepare to come? And I'm just going to ask, I'm going to have to move some microphones around here for just a minute. So if you would just pray silently uh, for just a minute and prepare your heart. Lord Jesus, we, um, we ask now that as we come to this table that you would come and do a powerful work of grace in our hearts uh, to bring the truth of the gospel home to us now as we celebrate this meal together that we might uh, see the reality of the love, the magnitude of the love that you have for us and in seeing it that we might become people who love others well. Uh, Come and do that work in us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to do this from over here this morning. And so if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then the promise is is that the love and the approval and the affirmation of the Father are upon your life apart from anything you've done to qualify yourself for it or anything you might do to disqualify yourself for it. Uh, That is the promise of this benediction. So receive then in everything that we've done this morning, whether it be celebrating this meal together or now as my hands are raised over you to bless you, receive the promise of the Father's love so that you might go and disappear for the sake of loving other people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you. He's looked at you. Do you see that? Turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.